Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. Today's episode of DTC Pod is brought to you by Audit. That's O-D-D-I-T. Audit offers comprehensive audits of your website and guarantees they can boost conversion and strengthen brand loyalty or your money back. Audits worked with over 750 DDC brands like You Kitchen, Wink, Procter & Gamble, Joan Rohn's Beauty, and hundreds more. Audit is giving all listeners a free quick win audit, so go to audit.co to get yours. That's oddit.co. Hey guys, uh, welcome to today's episode of the D2C Pod. Today, uh, you're joined by my co-host, uh, Ramon Barrios, uh, CEO of Trend, myself, Blaine Bolas, uh, COO of OmniPanel. And today we're joined by Matt Molinax, who is the CEO of Huron. Um, Matt, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about Huron for our listeners who may have not been able to catch you on the pod the first time around. Um, you know, just give us a little background, background about what you guys are up to. Yeah, I'm super pumped to be back for the victory lap. Uh, thank you both for having me. Uh, so Huron is a men's personal care business. Um, you know, one of our, our go-to taglines is we like to help guys help themselves, right? So our goal is to create 12 out of 10 A-plus quality products uh, for guys kind of figuring out the bathroom. Um, so that's across body wash, shampoo, conditioner, face wash, face moisturizer, eye stick, hair. Um, so leading with this notion of, you know, we come from a position of product quality. My co-founder, Matt Terry, spent 25 years developing product for Estee Lauder, leading corporate innovation, product development. Um, so you take that level of kind of product efficacy and quality, and we try and breathe it through a tone of voice that's much more approachable and fun, right? We like to say we're fun, not funny. We're not like a huge meme culture, but we try to take what is an otherwise like kind of awkward category to talk about and make it much more approachable, right? It's like, here's what we learned along the way. Here's some tips and tricks. Here's some off-label uses. Like we, we want to make this a category that's much more fun and appealing than simply walking into Walgreens or CVS once a month to buy neon green body wash. When you guys were in DTC pot last time, were you guys just launching out? I cannot remember exactly the details, but I remember looking at the brand and seeing just like, man, these people have really nailed the brand, the culture, et cetera. And it seems like that's still present today. I mean, you kicked us off with that. So, um, yeah. How long ago was that? You know, how were you guys launching out at the time? Yeah, I think it was right around launch to be honest. Um, oddly, like, Obviously, the, the world has changed a lot since. Um, Huron has changed a lot since. But I think our ethos remains the same, which is how can we connect with guys, again, in an awkward category that's not that fun to talk about in a very human way. I think one of our missions is kind of the element of humanization of brand, right? Like the consumer is getting smarter. The consumer expects really good quality products. But the consumer is also not dumb. And they want to understand, like, what's under the hood here? Like, who are the people that are making these products? Is it just a margin play? And some guys are like, oh, wow, there's a lot of margin in beauty and self-care. Like, let's do that. Or is there actually a direct one-to-one -one connection to the space? And I think from our perspective, we have kind of a two-to-one uh, opportunity in the category, which is, again, my, my partner Matt's background, having spent almost three decades in the category. And I was a kid who grew up with horrible skin, right? So I tried everything under the sun and finally found something that worked and that product was offensively priced. So we're like, wow, we should make this cheaper and deliver it to a much broader pool of guys. So that was always kind of the, 
the ethos and kind of the foundational purpose of Huron. So I think when we are able to tell that story and kind of the, the root story to some extent, it's, it, it resonates with a lot of folks because this is, this is a story. It's, it's not, I'm not an N of one, right? There's a lot of people who've gone through that painful discovery phase. And if we're able to connect with them on a relatability standpoint and then offer them an assortment of world-class products, you know, we think we could have a customer for life. Totally. Um, Matt, why don't you give us a little landscape of the, you know, personal care sort of space, um, what it's what it's like and how it's maybe evolved over the last couple of years, because you guys are obviously coming in as a D2C sort of entrant. But what ha- like how would you just characterize the the landscape of the space that you guys are playing in? And two quick adjectives that come to mind, growing and exciting. Right. Like I think there's been an increased focus um, on the men's category in particular. Uh, and I think it's exciting. Like there's a there's a bunch of new players in the space. Right. Like we're, we're not necessarily the only player who um, has kind of entered the category over the past few years. But I think what's exciting to see is these new challenger brands go after incumbents, which have sat on shelves for decades, providing like crap products. Right. So it's it's, you know. For instance, the Huron kind of formulation philosophy, 100% vegan products, cruelty-free, an extensive free of list. So we choose to manufacture without a ton of chemicals, which makes it difficult. Um, But it's helping this guy level up. And I think for a lot of guys in particular, this is the last domino to fall, right? You know, we, we like to help introduce our customers via nostalgia. So it's like, listen, man, what's something you do every day that you were doing 20 years ago? Like the answers are very few, right? You're probably not rocking cargo shorts or maybe listening to some of the things you were listening to or ripping your iPod to work every morning, but it's like, but you still use the exact same body wash and shampoo that like, this is the last domino. And I think, again, that's uh, that's the exciting piece. It's a challenging piece, which is how do you effectuate consumer behavior change, but it's exciting. So why don't, why don't you walk us through a little bit about, um, just the last year for you guys, right? Like you said, you were a little bit closer to launch, but what has, um, what's the last year been like with you? Um, I know that, you know, when we were chatting offline, something you were really excited about getting into a little bit was just about how you guys have like really been able to zero in on supply chain and focus on optimizing that. But, um, you know, whether you want to talk about that or just other things that come to mind over the last year, what's, what's kind of on your mind in terms of learnings over the last year? Yeah, um, no shortage of those. That's for sure. You know, I think kind of taking a step back, uh, even the past two years, um, they've been really tough, like for everyone. Right. And I think what's been difficult a little bit mentally for me in particular in our category is our category has seen tremendous growth tailwinds. Right. I mean, people have been locked in their own apartment. They're thinking about what am I putting in my body? What am I putting on my body? What routines and habits are due for an upgrade? So that's been a natural lift to the broader personal care wellness categories, which is exciting. So you're optimistic about business, but then you turn on the TV and you're like, geez, the world seems like it's melting. So it's like, how am I supposed to feel? You know, so it's like the pendulum never swings too far in either direction. Um, but kind of circling back to, to your earlier point, Blaine, I think one of the things that we've spent a lot of time on this year is supply chain. Um, you know, understanding that there's port congestion, understanding that there's, you know, all of a sudden manufacturer shut down overseas with components and things like that. Uh, the price to ship products has skyrocketed. Uh, you know, the domestic 
network of carriers is as stressed as ever, right? So again, those are all brand touch points. If your shampoo is out of stock, that's probably been a 20 week issue for us, right? It's like, can we get on this boat? Can we jump this line? Can we try and get these bottles intact? Like, can we push the manufacturer to get them on time? Or if you get something and it's a few days, it arrives a few days later than you had hoped, like it turns out our team maybe got it out the same day, but fell off the chain at USPS or like, you know, so there's just so many, so many issues and kind of friction points across the broader supply chain. So what we've really tried to do is double down on, on things that we feel like we're in control of, which is forecasting inventory, um, assessing demand planning, thinking about sales velocity across our two main channels, D2C and Amazon, and at least giving ourselves a fighting chance to be in stock especially during pivotal moments of the year, vis-a-vis Q4, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Um, but then walking the delicate line of not having too much stock, right? So think about managing inventory turns and things like that, where it's already a really difficult line to walk as is, but then you throw a global pandemic into the mix, you throw uh, delayed shipping timelines, you throw port congestion, you throw all these things, and it just, it really adds complexity. So we've done what we can over the past 12 to 18 months to make sure that we have the finger on the pulse of kind of where we sit as a brand in that moment to make sure at the very least we have actual products to sell because no one wants to come to the site and 60% of your assortment sold out. Right. But it's also kind of brand suicide to some extent to invest so much money in inventory if it's not going to move. Yeah, totally. And over, um, like you were saying, you guys meet a lot and you guys talk a lot and think a lot about supply chain. So in some of those meetings, like how do you run one of your supply chain meetings? Like what are the topics that you guys are talking about? Um, I know this isn't isn't something that you just talk about like once a quarter, you guys are talking about this several times a week. So, um, you know, what's your framework for running these, um, you know, meetings? How do you guys make sure you're all on the same page? And what does it look like on a weekly basis thinking about supply chain constantly for you guys? Yeah, we're a little old school in the sense that we just build out a pretty complex Excel model um, that basically just looks at literally inventory by SKU, inventory performance by SKU. So it's weekly sales velocity across both channels, um, uh, a scenario kind of base case, upside case, downside case around lead times. So what happens if lead time is actually plus two weeks or minus three weeks? How does that impact risk level? We have a safety stock trigger. It's like, hey, we want, we never want to have fewer than three weeks on hand of inventory. So we build that into the timelines. Um, what that allows us to do is say, okay, in the span of the next two to four weeks, we need to place another PO or else we're going to be at risk. And so we can kind of get ahead and say, like, what are current lead times? Like, what's our manufacturing manufacturer seeing? Are there any congestion points or, or choke points? Um and we feel, again, like there are so many curveballs coming at us on a day-to-day basis, but at least it gives us some fighting chance to say, you know, we can keep steady inventory, keep customers happy, keep subscribers subscribed, um, and continue to, to make and sell great product. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Like, you know, you're looking at this data constantly, but what are some of the key decisions, you know, that are, that are coming out of this? And um that was a good example because you can be looking at this data, reporting on it all day. But if you're not really, you know, knowing what what are some of the key decisions that that you're going to make with it, it's pretty much worthless. Um, I like what you said, something along the lines of like, you know, what what are the breaking points um, that you could foresee? Um, it seems like do you have sort of like 
this bullet list of, you know, hey, here's the things we should look out for? Or is it more of an open conversation and then, you know, having the data feed the questions? Question, you know, I think so just kind of like circling back to, to the last question. So we basically have that type of breakdown for every single product in our assortment. Um, so there are triggers like, are we shipping this ocean versus air? Like what's the component lead time? What's the manufacturing lead time? What's travel into our DC or fulfillment center? And we're doing that literally on a product by product basis. And when we go through and tick through at that level of granularity, then we can immediately say like, hey, we need a PO here and it's gotta be for this amount because that's gonna take us to X. And like, where does X put us? Like, does that put us in a risky time of year? Maybe like Q4 where like velocities can change quite quickly. Um, so we're constantly thinking one to two steps ahead or at least trying to. So again, like we're, we're staying on top of things. But inevitably in every business, there's just going to be things that are fundamentally out of your control, right? Like we, we had an instance this year, which was awesome, where we had one of our SKUs selling on Amazon that took a while to kind of get the flywheel effect going. But obviously Amazon is like the most cynical and objective platform, right? Like people will come out in troves to talk about products and it's usually not in a great way. We're very fortunate that we actually have really strong reviews across the board for our SKUs. But we had one product that 10 x from May to October in terms of monthly velocity. And like, can't plan for that. Um, now, it's a fantastic problem to have. We were very grateful. But that immediately throws a massive kink in the reorder process, right? So then you have to think about, okay, what's the hierarchical structure of who gets remaining inventory if there's going to be a stock out? It's like, all right, we got to make sure the next six weeks of subscribers, like that those orders will get fulfilled. Then what's the messaging on website? Like, do you have a sign-up form? Do you communicate when the back in stock is? Um, so there's a big ripple effect. So just an example of like, when you think you have a good understanding of the status quo, how one thing, good or bad, can really kind of course correct and, and, and kind of change the direction of, of what the planning may look like. These are first case scenarios um, because I, I mean, I assume you still get, are getting a lot of first case scenarios. You guys are experiencing rapid growth and, and you just launched recently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we had another SKU, for instance, that, uh, you know, we launched in, we launched in October. Um, and it was a sizing variation. So we make jumbos, like the jumbo body wash, like a, like a big kind of jumbo pump format, which is great because guys are super lazy and heavy handed and they can just like hit the nozzle a bunch of times and get your product and get on the way. We've, we forecast that guys would want to try this product out, right? It's, it's a new product. It's a new scent. Scent is a huge driver for us. So maybe let's not overinvest at the start, but let's understand kind of what that buying behavior is like. So we forecast what we thought would be a few months worth of inventory on hand, sold out in four days. So now it's like, oh, like that's interesting, but now we're out of stock and the lead times are quite long, right? So now you have people come to the site, hey, I just saw an email about you guys launched this product, but like it's already out of stock, like what's going on? And you're like, ugh, well, <laughs> thanks Blaine, but uh, here's kind of what happened. Um, but no, I mean, and, and like, you know, tongue in cheek aside, you put those folks on a short list, you come up with a quippy email, like, oh, geez, we had to fire our inventory intern, like the worst. Um, and people get a kick out of that type of stuff. And then, but when you're back in stock, that's when people are like, oh, sick. Like I've been wanting these for a while. And like, now they're finally, now they're finally back. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an ever changing landscape. Um, and I think the one consistency with planning is that it's just going to be wrong. 
So it's trying to like narrow the band to which, uh, you know, your, your contributions to the level of incorrectness are, are quite small. That's uh no, that's such a good point because you're, you're always going to, you want, you want to limit the types of, uh, problems that you're having to, to hopefully they're just the good ones where you're like, Hey, sorry, we're, we're out of stock. Cause we're, we're, we're doing so well. And you don't want that to be happening obviously all the time. But, um, my question would be because you, this is such a cross-functional problem that you you guys are trying to solve. I know you said you guys meet three times a week. You're talking about these supply chain issues, but like what you just mentioned, right? That's, that's something that deals with marketing, c- communication, inventory, supply chain, stock product, et cetera. So how are you guys working cross-functionally as a team and how are you like spearheading that? Um, with your team to make sure everyone's uh, on the same page and communicating like one voice to your customers? Yeah, really good question. Um, So what's interesting is we're a team of five and we were a team of four for 16 months. Um, We just brought on our fifth at the start of the year. Uh, So I'm getting at is like literally everyone's exposed to everything and everyone is kind of touching everything. I think what we're getting better at is dividing and conquering. We're not, everyone has to be, a part of every single conversation, right? But to your point, at the scale that we're at, at the stage that we're at, everyone has to be clued into what's happening. So we have pretty broad content planning meetings kind of six weeks out to understand like where we longer in stock, what can we focus on, what stories can we tell, what's the educational content, but there's always kind of a thematic play behind those. So we're not pushing products that were low in stock or potentially be stocked out on, right? I mean, it's just more of a strategic play than anything. But I think that's an example of like how each element of the business has to work in unison or else you get you get breakpoints, right? Like no one wants to get an email and be the first to open it and try and buy something if it's sold out. So I think that's that you know that's something kind of planning four to six weeks out a lot of these marketing initiatives um, has allowed us to get smarter around what we're pushing, the kits that we're building, the promos that we're running, uh, to make sure that we're, again, as a brand, we're kind of putting our best foot forward. On that content part of, you know, strategizing and planning out the content, I assume you also bake in there, you know, the content planning for products that aren't even yet out. And so you have to plan, when are we going to have this creative to test the launch of this product, which is probably two months out? And how does that match with our supply chain? And are we actually going to be able to launch then? And, you know, if a curveball happens, I assume it throws the whole plan um, into a spiral. Um, so what are some of the challenges that, that you might be having in terms of like matching the content with the actual supply chain and, and marketing? Yeah, Um I think the best we can do is plan in advance, right? Because so long as there is a plan, the plan can be flexible. I think where we hit some difficult times in 2021 is as such a small team with everyone spread so thin, we were like making last second changes to a bunch of things, which snowballs in a not great way and then usually manifests itself into something ugly. So for us, like we've now adopted this this content plan or content strategy where we're planning right now for all of April. So it's, we have good foresight into what our inventory position is going to be, but also like what time of year is April? It's like spring cleaning, like what are natural products that lend themselves to interesting storytelling? Like we're kind of wrapping all that stuff as a part of these content planning sessions. I think in terms of new product launches, I mean, we know we need to bring newness to the table on a relatively frequent basis, whether that's quarterly, biannually, et cetera. Um, so we are planning for a few launches later in the year, 
But in this world, I mean, product development can be 12 to 18 months, sometimes longer. So, I mean, the lead times are wild. So it's, well, how do you think about the intermediate opportunities to bring newness to the consumer base when it's not new product? Is it a vessel change? Is it a size change? Is it, we just made travel sizes. Is it a new interesting website feature? You know, on the, on that, on that piece, we just ran um, a pretty intensive customer survey uh, last week. We basically surveyed three separate cohorts, VIPs, recent one-time customers, churn customers, and compiled a series of very similar questions. So we can kind of analyze them in the course of three cohorts. But one of the questions we asked was, you know, what would be a website feature that you'd be super pumped about? And we got so much good feedback, convincing feedback around like there were two things that like we really need to hone in on, but that allows us to bring this base newness when product is working behind the scenes, right? So I think it's twofold where, yes, it's important to constantly be bringing new products to the market, but at the same time, balancing that with skew proliferation, but also just thinking about other ways you can offer value to your base that's not just promotion or new product. How do you how do you as a CEO delegate all this information across all of these departments? Because this is an orchestra, right? Like this all comes together. It, you know, it's it's one set of information that has to go to everyone. Hire people that are way smarter than you are, <laughs> and you work for them. Um, yeah, that's a good plan. Yeah, but we, uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate, folks that push really hard, really, really sharp. And we make data driven decisions that are informed by visceral gut feel, right? It's like, Hey, here's kind of the products that our guys would love to see. The top two can totally view that as like a future here on product. The third, maybe not so much. Right. So it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a song and dance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, again, like we've constructed a very kind of data first type perspective to the category and to the business that permeates throughout the organization. And I think when you kind of build that infrastructure, we think about ways in which we can collect more data, right? So the survey is a great example. Now, there's a lot of opportunity then on the qualitative side to like complete that cycle, which for us is like, let's circle back with people who, you know, wanted product X and like, we actually launched it a month ago and they didn't see it. So it's like, oh, hey, by the way, Billion, like we launched this deodorant like 45 days ago. Here's one on the house. Like, thanks for being an awesome customer of Huron. And that costs us a few bucks, right? In shipping and product costs. But maybe Blaine goes and now buys the Huron deodorant for two calendar years straight and also tells like 50 of his buddies about that experience. Right. So um, I think there's there's a push pull between like pure play data and like obsessing over the numbers, but also thinking about other ways we can create that world class experience that's not as like transactional X's and O's focused as well. And I think that's the really exciting part about being at the stage that you guys are at and having you as close to the ground as you are, is you can do those things that, you know, at a bigger company, they may call that like totally unscalable, where you realize that like, hey, A, we're, we have a subscription offering. If we do great and we have a great product that we've spent all this time developing and someone like likes that, they're not only going to subscribe, so that's going to like the, you know, LTV to CAC on that is going to be in our favor. And then also like 
just in terms of like the word of mouth and the surprise and delight you can give this customer and get them to become a brand evangelist that way. Like, that's awesome that like you at this level are able to, you know, think like that and operate like that. Right. Because I think a lot as, as brands scale, you're, you're so looking in the data that sometimes you're just making decisions and you're like, this drives this. And, you know, we can see this number and then you're actually doing something like you might be sending um, email after email after email saying like, hey, buy my product, buy my product, buy my product. And yes, it's technically it's working every time, but you're having a subset of those users every time peel off and be like, that's the last time I'm going to open that, that email from that company, you know? So kind of understanding what you're saying about that push pull, it's so important. Yeah. And I, I think you, you touched on a really interesting topic and I feel like it's very in the zeitgeist and trendy now, whether it's on Twitter or what have you, like people are like, oh, like let's do things that don't scale. It's like, well, what does that mean? And what are you doing? Right? It, it, it's fun to talk about that and say that. But like, what does that mean in principle? And when you peel back the layers of the onion, it's not really that difficult, but it requires work. And I think like the unscalable piece is often synonymous with like manual work. It's not just dumping stuff into an automated Klaviyo flow. It's not just dumping something into here and like letting this program do its thing. You know, we have a trigger, for instance, with all new customers, where if you spend 3x our AOV, like, it immediately flags us, like, like this order number, like, and it gets sent to two of our email inboxes. And we'd be like, hey, Ramon, what's going on? Like, I'm also from Chicago. Like, turns out Huron is named after Huron Street in Chicago. Like, God, the winners suck. Like, thanks so much for being an awesome customer. Like, don't hesitate to reach out if you need us. Like, that is not scalable. Like, and that is very easy to do. You just have to think about, like, how does it fit within your brand parameters, right? And for us, tone of voice, humanization, relatability is really, really important. So for us, like that's been a that's been an example of an easy win. But it's just like it's kind of eye roll a little bit when you when you read about like, oh, I like to do things that don't scale. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what what are you doing? Um, because yes, in principle, you're right. And like, there is a lot of brand and social capital to be had doing things that don't scale. But what are you actually doing? And is it actually non-scalable? And if you can kind of find the marriage between those two, then you're probably doing something right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, maybe what you would call unscalable, it's, it's like there are things that you can do and ways that you could do it just requires a, a lot of work. And ultimately what it comes down to and what you hit on is that's hyper-personalization and being a human, right? So when you're at a, a, a a 50,000 foot view, like, yeah, you just have customers, but Hey, if we can narrow down just the customers that had X, Y, Z attributes and now talk to them like a human, all of a sudden, like, yeah, that's technically not scalable, but you're just being a human and being hyper-personalized in the right place at the right time. And they're going to remember that. Right. 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 You're not buying body wash. You're buying products from a brand that you met someone at that you like, and therefore you're more inclined to come back to support the brand the product just happens to be the vessel. 100%. Uh, one story that I, I always like to hear, one of, one of my buddies, um, he used to work at Nike and do a lot of, um, you know, launching with them. And one of their their things that they always talked about was like the idea of like surprise and delight, right? So, um, you know, they would give product when people were expecting it the least, right? With, with no ask, no... Um, not expecting anything necessarily in turn, but when you can like surprise and delight your customers in that hyper personal way, a lot of times the ROI on that is going to, you know, outdo anything that, you know, you could really plan for or, or, or map out. I mean, as an operator too, like it's important. And if any founder is listening to this, that 
the customer is not always optimizing for the cheapest, right? Like that is not the biggest value proposition a brand can have. And I'm experiencing this right now. I'm talking with an agency, you know, I'm here in Miami. I'm talking with an agency that I went to their offices. They're down the street. They're like three times as much, like they cost three times more than this other agency that I really like as well. But I'm like, the guy's down the street. I met him. I can go there. I trust them. Um, and so, you know, when I talk with my partner about this decision, it's like, look, we're not necessarily optimizing for the cheapest here. And so it's always important to keep that in mind that, you know, not every customer is, is optimizing for the cheapest. And most likely, you know, the, the customers that are are probably not the best customers that you can go out there to acquire. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, Matt, what, my next question was going to be, as you've grown, what have been some of the most successful channels for you guys on, um, you know, on the acquisition side of things? But then, um, you know, yeah, why don't we just start with like acquisition? How have you guys gone about acquiring your customers and what's worked really well for you guys? Yeah, I mean, we acquire customers to the site, kind of through the usual suspects, Facebook yep. and Google, right? Yep. And then we have a pretty sizable Amazon business. Um you know, transparently, I think one of the things we've seen is kind of at our price point, you know, mm -hmm. Mastige level kind of 10 to $15 products, like you're not generating a 6X ROAS on Facebook anymore, right? Like maybe we're in 2013. So we could try to beat the algorithm, which is just fundamentally not going to happen. Or we could say like, let's think about things differently and figure out what are the channels that we can lean into and maybe invest a little bit as a test and see what happens. And I think that in March of 2020 for us was Amazon. Um, and it has since taken off. And I think why Amazon is super compelling for us, kind of dating, uh, doubling back to what we said earlier, it's a very objective pro platform that's predicated upon reviews. So if you have a really good quality product, like you will get the credit for that. And I think that's been a super interesting thing that we've seen over the course of the past two years. Because if you can get the Amazon flywheel going, it's wild. Um, and I think that in 2022, the perception of Amazon has changed, right? And D2C 1.0 is like Amazon, like gross. Like I don't want the brand dilution of being on Amazon. And now people are like, this is the world's biggest retailer, right? So like in certain categories, why would you not lean into this? If you're a prospective customer of ours and you're living in a apartment in downtown Detroit and you're buying paper towels and toilet paper and toothpaste and whatnot, like why would we not be right there in front of you to potentially catch your eye and have you try us out as a brand and a product? So for us, it was, it was kind of a no brainer. Um, and we've just seen tremendous success on that platform. And I think what's interesting is, you know, we, we obviously will still market on Facebook and we run paid search. We're actually pretty decent at paid search. Um, but the, our ability to acquire customers on Amazon has been pretty amazing. Uh, and we're just viewing all of our marketing efforts in totality, right? Because you may get served a Facebook ad, then Google Huron, then check out the site, then be like, oh, they're also on Amazon. Buy, right? Amazon gets credit. None of those other channels get credit but like it was such a multi-touch process that they should. So what we've gotten smarter around is like, in a world where no one's gonna win the attribution war, can we just look at broader marketing spend, kind of silo Amazon a little bit, but just looking at broader marketing spend to say, is a rising tide lifting boats?
right? And if we choose to invest in certain categories, are we getting the credit for that cross channel and across category? So how are you thinking about like Amazon versus your D2C stuff? Are you seeing like any peel off from like Amazon? They'll buy a couple bottles um, of product from Amazon and then maybe they're like, oh, uh, love this product. And then maybe they peel over to your site. Are they totally different? Like, are, are you guys seeing anything um, on that front? Not a ton of examples of kind of the cross pollination. It's really folks who kind of, Look, I'm an Amazon buyer because I live in New York and I don't want to go to the store. So I'm just going to get this one day prime delivery and like, that's my jam. Perfect. Um, and then you may have more pure play. Like I like to shop on brand websites. Like that's my jam. Our goal is to get as much product into people's hands as possible. And we want to cater to whatever channel or means makes the most sense for you. So again, like I, we track a little bit of that to see like, is there fall off? Are we picking up some D2C customers? Can you own the customer? Like I, I, for us, it's like our goal is to get as much product into the wild as possible, kind of irregardless of what channel makes the most sense for you. Yeah. So I was going to ask, so on the attribution, you touched a little bit on the attribution war. So like, you know, you, do you just pretty much put that on the umbrella of the overall marketing spend rather than like, you know, trying to break off, break up almost the impossible. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we we have a pretty in-depth dashboard around kind of channel specific performance. And then we layer in Amazon and then we kind of layer in a holistic marketing perspective. And then we have just assumptions, right? It's like, Hey, I actually think like we're going to get an X percent lift over the next, you know, seven days from Facebook. So like this could act, this CPA range could be X to Y, you know, a little bit narrow range for Google, um, Amazon, you know, we feel kind of comfortable in the one day. Uh, so we're kind of like, almost scenario assessing a little bit the marketing performance on a day-to-day -day level, but we have a pretty good understanding of where we need to be from a D to C blended CPA, where we've been historically from an Amazon CPA and kind of figuring out where we can kind of start with our broader acquisition budget for the month and say like, here's what we have to spend. Like, let's start figuring out, you know, we know approximately X percent is going to be allocated here, Y percent here. But if there are certain things that happen, if creative hits, if creative doesn't hit, like we have the flexibility to kind of cross channel and, and move between these platforms. Do you have favorite tools that make your life a lot easier to gather all of this information or do you guys just good old, you know, good old spreadsheet? No, I'd like to say we're cool and use all these sexy tools, but we just have a gnarly Google sheet. Um, Nice. But it works, right? It, it it just works for us. And we that's that's kind of our jam. Like, again, I wish I had a better answer to pretend like I was cool. But, uh, you know, the it's literally just monitor. done on Google Sheet. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's like we're trading cow futures. Yeah. Um, but it's really just, it's Google Sheets. Um, now we have it so, like, we're you're only inputting a few things and the formula kind of do their do their thing. But, you know, rather than just, like, investing, you know, we didn't want to have a tool to manage the tools. And about halfway through last year, I felt like we were kind of getting there, which is like, I don't even remember what we use anymore to do this, like when I can go just do this. So we just got like, thoughtful, more thoughtful around like, what we're using on the analytics side. Um, I'm a firm believer that the key to growing larger is thinking smaller, right, which is like refining the scope like trying not to take on too, too much, but understanding like what's working and investing in those things. Um, so we've really tried to just kind of focus on what is driving the business forward. How can we invest in those channels and categories? 
what maybe are the tools that can help us provide some insights. But for the most part, um, you know, we can just do it kind of in a, in a brute force way. I totally hear you on that because some of these platforms like the APIs, like just to pull the data along, um, how, how much it can break. It's just like you're managing all these developers just to pull all this data constantly. So um, that's awesome. And then your Shopify app store looks like a flea market, right? It's like, yeah. I don't even remember what this app does. You're like, this app is eating up a bunch of space and like delaying site speed and it's doing nothing, right? So we just infused a bit more intentionality into how we're thinking about like the broader user experience on site and anything that could add any sort of time delays at all. That's not like mission critical to our growth, like out. A hundred percent. And I, I mean, I think that's something that we see a lot of because there's so many different Shopify apps. And when those touch points get spread, spread across like a whole ecosystem, it's just, it's a lot to manage. Right. And I, I think one of the interesting things is Shopify basically serves as your like your the core of your like customer data sort of platform, right? So it's these Shopify businesses. They're not built necessarily like tech businesses where you've got a complex data warehouse and you're porting all that information into that. So the fact that you guys can run your um, service and your operations and keep things simple, that's probably the best way to do it. Otherwise, a lot of the merchants like that we work with, they're um, you know, they use our tool to like streamline a lot of those workflows, but otherwise it's a ton of just downloading CSVs out of these different services, then creating pivot tables. And guess what? They're doing that back in Excel where they currently are. So if you've got a good process and you're, you're, you're on your, your core stuff anyway, that's, um, I think that's a really important point. It's like focus on the stuff that, that matters. So love how you guys are thinking about that. Um, net, last question about, um, the kind of stuff we've been talking about. How are you guys seeing um, subscriptions, right? That's clearly um, a big part of your business. It's being able to generate repeat purchases from customers, um, maintain a long-term relationship with them. How have you seen that? Um, how frequently are customers subscribing to these products? And what's your strategy as it pertains to subscription? Very good question. Um, this is a really interesting sandbox for us um, for a few different reasons. First, and we've tested this a little bit, so, and it's gonna be different for every brand. I feel pretty strongly that our base hates the word subscription. You're a Netflix subscriber. You're a Spotify subscriber. You don't want another subscription. So can we change the vernacular to make it seem like this is super convenient? Is it auto renew? Is it auto delivery? Like, what is it such that there's not like this stigma around another subscription, which I actually think carries a lot of weight. Um, but more so for us, I think it's, you know, the goal is to provide value to the customer and to get him product, right? Or her product. I think where the conversation of ARR and subscription and da da da, and people are just force feeding subscription. You have to be really strategic and thoughtful about where in the purchasing funnel you're even presenting subscription. Like, if you've never shopped with us before, we should be super, super thoughtful about how we're presenting our products, whether they're auto defaulted to a la carte versus subscription, um, whether we're introducing subscription or reintroducing subscription, maybe after your second or third purchase. Like, hey, we can make this a lot easier if you like, but totally your call. Um, another interesting aspect for us has actually been the larger components, the jumbos, right? Which if you think about the use case there, it's kind of like 
we're, we're getting to the finish line faster of what subscription is from a business perspective, which is that's basically three months in one bottle that we only have to send once. Right. And I think in our category, which oftentimes gets overlooked, um, shipping costs add up quickly and fulfillment costs. So it's how do you think about managing that? Can you help your customer create more of a quarterly bundle or a quarterly kit that you only have to send a few times a year, but maybe the order's bigger, right? Maybe that customer doesn't live in a New York City shoebox like I do, um, and they actually have closet space. How nice. Um, and they can store some of the stuff. Um, so we've thought long and hard about like, again, how can we add value? Not how can we drive our ARR? And I think one is cart before the horse. The other is actually how you can think about actually unlocking subscription because you're putting the consumer hat on first. And I oftentimes think that's that's the angle that gets overlooked, right? It's like, oh, like I'm trying to raise a, a seed or an A and I got to get my ARR numbers up. So like, let's give people 300% off their first order just so we can juice these numbers. But it's like, well, well, what are you learning? Like, what's the churn behavior from the different promos that you're testing or running? Like, what's that? What's the difference in LTV? Right. And I think these are these are very measurable points that oftentimes get swept under the rug because they just fall under the umbrella of I have a customer who is a subscriber, but you have no idea about the behavior, the preferences, why or why not they subscribed initially. Um, so I again, I'm, I'm going way too far down a rabbit hole, but I think subscription is something we're, we're really focused on. I think it's the so that's like at the strategy level. I think tactically is where we're trying to get smart around how do we position, how do we package, how do we communicate the value that we can bring to our consumer who's going to buy this product anyway, every four weeks. So, um, and that's where the tone of voice and kind of the fun gets into it. But we think long and hard about this because it's not just a light switch AR type thing where we can blast out emails and be like, buy this, buy this, here's X percent off. It's, Again, what are what good are we bringing to this customer um, and letting that kind of drive the bus? And if you don't have that nailed down strategically, it's called, it's also going to, you know, trickle into into it tactically. Like if you don't even know, you know, what the payback period is going to be on those discounts, let's assume LTV is going to be the same. You don't know what payback period is going to be or it's going to be two times longer. You don't have your finger on the pulse and the cash flow, which then technically it's not going to allow you things that you could have done if you were playing the long-term game. But exactly. And, you know, I, I'm sure you know him, but Eli from Olipop is a, is a good buddy. And like, I think he's literally written the rule book around like subscription management and proactive CX, which is hugely important in this category, especially for subscription um, and managing and fostering and building those relationships. I think that's why that program has really taken off. I think one other thing to add on the tactical side that we've kind of taken a look at is like the table stakes offer for so many subscriptions is, you know, save 15%, get free shipping. Um, for all of eternity, but like, what's the customer profile that you're onboarding, right? From to your earlier point around like cheap customers, right? Like what's actually the dollar savings that you're eating by paying for shipping? And is the intent lower from the customer if you are giving that person free shipping? Maybe it's more beneficial to give 75% off your first order, but you still have to pay for shipping because that's a little bit of friction and if you're willing to overcome that friction, it's probably a better LTV customer. So we've played a lot around first order discounts, whether or not shipping's included or not, 
and kind of found a mix that we're pretty excited about. But that's something that we're always testing, right? Which is, yes, you want to grow the subscriber base. You want to create compelling value. But at the end of the day, like, it has to work X's and O's for the brand as well. And the best way to know, like, which of these offerings is actually working is to measure and test. Um, so that's something that we're constantly. And it's something you can't predict at all. And the only way that you can find out is by paying the price. Um, and it's a hefty one to pay. I call it like, it's like this dopamine of like seeing the sales go off. It, it literally is like a dopamine effect that by the time you realize it, uh, you realize it, you're super deep into it and there's a heavy price to pay for it. Yeah. No, Matt, what, the last thing I was just going to say about that was, I think what you had just said about how you're thinking about subscription is really neat because you're not looking at it from one dimension, right? Like even what you just said about, for example, if we put three months worth of product in a bottle, it's like basically like a subscription because they're, <laughs> we ship it once and they're gonna be using it over the course of three months and then they're gonna come back and we probably know they use it every day for three months, then they're gonna love our product and come back for more. So thinking about, and, and I think the lesson there for other brands that might be listening in and how they approach subscription isn't just one dimensionally, say 15% when you subscribe, it's like, all these other little pieces of the actual UX of the subscription and how that product fits in their lifestyle and thinking about that. Um, so anyway, um, I guess the last question um, before we let you go is what's on the radar for you guys, uh, you know, coming up in, in, in the next year here? Yeah, I already made a, a small allusion to it earlier, but we definitely have some new products on the roadmap that we're super excited about. Um, again, kind of, as a result of some of the survey work that we found last year, but now we have a new set of survey results to kind of dig into, which were both confirmatory, but also like, oh man, like we should get on that because that's awesome. Um, so definitely kind of keeping the product development pipeline humming is something that we're certainly focused on. Um, we'll definitely like to build out the team a little bit. So I like to say we grew our team by 25% uh, in January, but really, really hired one, same, same. Um, so thinking about like, again, like what are those core positions that we feel like we need to kind of take here onto the next level? Um, when we start these hiring process processes, we look for 12 out of 10 players. Like we want folks who can add value at time zero. Oftentimes that might lead to a slightly longer recruiting process, but our goal is to not put butts in seats here. It's again, for me to feel like, and this, like I say this tongue in cheek, but I actually kind of mean it like literally the dumbest person on our team. Like if you, the founder CEO can say that, like, seriously, then you've done a fantastic job hiring the right people. So we, we kind of are really focused on really building out the roster of talent, bringing new products to market and continuing to serve our, our awesome customer base. Awesome. Well, anyway, we just wanted to thank you for, for coming on the pod with us today. Dropped a ton of great knowledge. Um, and we're really excited to continue to follow the journey um, with you guys in here on last thing. Um, for the audience, if they want to find you, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, where, where can, where can the audience connect with you? Yeah, Twitter's probably the best, just at Matt Mullinex. It's pretty easy. Um, it's been, it, it's been fun to kind of engage on that app recently. So, uh, yeah, that, that's probably the best place. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. Pleasure having you on, man. Thanks for having me. Look forward to round three. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. See you guys. Okay.